In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Men in the Arena Army, I salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your host and guide to helping you become the best version of man inside the stress bubble of life and beyond. I am the host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. Thank you for making that so. We interview a lot of authors on this podcast. You know, I think that John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, is the greatest book for men of our generation. But I think that this book that we're going to talk about today by author Emerson Egeritz is the most valuable book written to couples in our generation. I'm saying that firsthand as a guy who's watched the videos, read the book numerous times. You guys will want to hang on to this because this will you'll learn some principles today that will literally, literally change your marriage. And so I'm really honored. I'm really excited to have our guest on today, Emerson, Dr. Emerson Egeritz. Nice to have you on, sir. Hey, Dale, thank you so much. And Jim, I appreciate it. Well, the handsome one is Jim. That's me. And the other one over there, I don't know, Dale, I don't, I don't know what we're calling him today. I have a handsome voice. <laughs> he does have a very handsome voice. So, hey, Emerson, I want to just introduce you to our crowd. So Emerson is 67 years old. He lives in Rockford, Michigan. He's an author, speaker, president of the organization Love and Respect Ministries. He's been doing that for 19 years. And, of course, he's authored the book Love and Respect, 1.9 million copies sold. The copy I have just says 1 million, so they've doubled since I've read that. So that's how long I've, you know. Uh, his mission in life is to impact marriages and families for Christ, which he has done so well. Married to his beautiful wife, Sarah, for 45 years. They have three adult children, two sons and a daughter. And uh, Emerson, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited for this invitation. And uh, even now, you've uh, already stimulated me and i think it's going to be a fun interaction because this is very very important it is it is huge so what we're going to do is uh we're going to throw you right into something that we call our rapid fire round and what i've done because your book has been so significant to me and to many people i care about i have i have made a completely different round just for you I've never mm. done this round before, and oh. this is called the key word round. And before I go into this, I just want to say this on a personal level, Emerson. Uh, your book is exactly 325 pages long. That's a long book. But the beauty of your book for me, I mean, I, I read about 30 books a year. I've written nine. But the beauty of your book for me is there's, there's such a simplicity in the book. It's so very simple, and the concepts are so practical and simple. I felt like in 325 pages that I narrowed it down to just a few 
few really significant themes. So the book is not overpowering. It's easy to read. You've got some hilarious stories in there. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. You have quotes from different women and different men who've been impacted. And so on a, on a personal note, I just want to say thank you uh, for impacting my marriage. Oh, beautiful. I am honored and humbled by that. That is greatly energizing to me. Thank you, Dale. <laughs> okay, well, I think I'm going to be called Dale today, and you're going to be called Jim. <laughs> I'm Jim. I am so sorry about that. <laughs> I wouldn't care, but in your book, I know that you're a detail-oriented person, and it would just haunt you to no end to know that you called me Dale the whole podcast. <laughs> I'm okay with it. <laughs> Have I made that mistake already? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. I'm so I'm Jim, and then yeah, but that's okay. We had Paul Coughlin on the Paul Coughlin on the podcast, and I called him Paul Coughlin the entire time. So uh, uh, my mistake. So I'm gonna. So this keyword round, uh, Emerson. I'm gonna ask you several keywords out of your book, and I just want you to explain what these keywords mean to our our listeners today. Okay. I will do that, Jim. But part of the problem here is Dale keeps coming on the screen saying Dale, 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 Dale. So I just uh, subconsciously, you know. Jim should buy his own iPad. He set this up. He's uh, he's to blame there. Don't think it's my stupidity. It's that he's so persuasive. Well, I assure you I would never think you are stupid. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that's right. It is your iPod. My or iPad, iPad yeah. yeah. So, yeah. all right, we're gonna jump in here. Whether you call me Jim or Dale or not, I'm good to go, man. So, first <laughs> word is pink. Well, we talk about the fact that a woman looks at the world through pink sunglasses. She has pink hearing aids. She speaks through a pink megaphone, and she expects everybody to know what she means by what she says. So, one of the points I sometimes make is, uh, you know, she'll say, "I have nothing to wear," <laughs> and uh, what she means is she has nothing new. A guy says, I have nothing to wear. What he means is he has nothing clean. <laughs> and so, so it's this pink and blue perspective. And she filters the world through pink. And the question is, how in the world are we to figure that out? That's so good. You know, you, early on in my marriage, I made this mistake, but I haven't made it before. Like when I go grocery shopping and my wife says, hey, honey, will you take my car? Now I go fill up the gas, thanks to you. Because <laughs> I know what she's really saying. <laughs> That's good. Uh, are you going good. to Walmart, honey? Do you need tampons, babe? <laughs> you know, just trying to interpret her pink. So next yes. word uh, for us is the word love. Love and respect. And uh, But the idea of love, again, uh, is based on Ephesians 5.33, where God commands the husband uniquely to agape love uh, his wife. No, agape is the Greek word for unconditional love. And no wife is commanded to agape love her husband. And so when we talk about love and respect in the book, we're highlighting the fact that God reveals something unique to the husband, as we also point out, he reveals uniquely to the wife. But that becomes the real challenge because God commands us to do that. It therefore means we probably don't do it naturally. Hmm. Otherwise, the command is moot. And so there is something in me that does not respond lovingly and naturally. And I think Dale, in this instance, not Jim, said earlier that, uh, you know, if he's disrespected and you did too, there's a stubbornness. We, we lose the energy. It's very natural for us to not love when we feel dissed. And so the question on the table is, how do you do the loving thing when we're getting little respect? And that becomes a critical question. And that's one of the questions I have today. And I love the statement, we don't do it naturally. So speaking of that, the next word is, obviously, Respect. Mm-hmm. 
And again, uh, it's interesting to me that how few women understand what respect is in marriage. They'll say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I will then say, well, you know what disrespect is? And they say, oh, yeah, I got that down. <laughs> so they definitely know the negative. And I often say, if you just tone that down a little bit, he'll, he'll feel respected because he'll see what you're doing and feel honored. But again, the scripture in Ephesians 5.33 instructs a wife to respect her husband. And uh, Peter hits the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, that you actually win a disobedient husband through respectful behavior. Mm -hmm. And again, neither Paul nor nor Peter command a wife to agape love her husband. And one of the points I make by way of sidebar, many land on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and say that's what marriage is all about. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. Correct. 1 Corinthians 7 is about marriage. And if you start with the love chapter, women are already 10 steps out of the chute, you know, uh, if you filter that chapter through uh, the marital relationship. And so then he gets judged based on 1 Corinthians 13. But if you look at it as part of the spiritual gifts teaching, 12 through 14, then when you start to apply that, a lot of men are far more um, loving outside the home. You know, she can be really disrespectful toward, you know, whoa, he's trying to, whoa, 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 we need to be more loving here. We need to calm down a little bit. And so there is this balance there. But we'll highlight in the in the podcast, what do we mean by respect? And I think particularly we want to get at this idea, how do we as men deal with those moments of feeling disrespected? And I think some of the men listening will have a moment of self-discovery because what has happened is that women will say, well, you haven't earned the respect. You don't deserve the respect. I don't feel any respect for you. I'm not going to be hypocritical and showing it to you. You're not superior to me. I'm not inferior to you. I'm not going to be treated like a doormat. I'm not going to just worship you. I'm not going to give you license to do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to submit to your emotional abuse. But other than these things, I guess I'm really open to hearing what you have to say about it. <laughs> and so when a man hears what I call the mantra there, all of those things, the first year or two of his marriage, he shuts down. Mm -hmm. And so then he attaches other reasons for his upset because if he says, you're not respecting me, she goes through that mantra. So that doesn't fly. That's like a Led Zeppelin. So then he comes up with other reasons. And over a period of time, he loses touch with his own inner um, feeling here because it's been labeled as narcissistic and egotistical. But I make the point that men serve and die for honor. And we know there's toxic masculinity out there, but all these toxic masculine individuals doing the shootings are also uh, shooting into the crowds where the men are taking the bullets to die for the women. <laughs> yes, true. And on the Titanic, who are most of the people that died? Mm -hmm. Men. That yeah, men will die. I mean, all things being equal, men always die. Yes. You know, in fact, one husband said to his wife, "I love you so much, I would die for you." And she said, "Oh, Harry, you keep saying that, but you never do." <laughs> I read that in the book. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, I we had a guy on our podcast a while back. I didn't bring this up in his book, but I disagreed with his statement. He said, love is the greatest need for a, that a man has in his life. And I thought, well, that's not true for me. For me personally, honestly, if my wife loves me, that's a bonus. But if she does not respect me, that is the greatest need I have. And that's the greatest thing I can give to a man is my respect. If I can gift you respect... That's the greatest thing I can do for a man. So for me, I struggle with love being my greatest need. I have not felt that. Am I off there? No. I mean, I've had men softly lean over and say, is it wrong for me to want to live with a woman who respects me but doesn't love me than to live with a woman who loves me but has no respect for me? I said, no, that second woman would be your mother. <laughs> 
Oh man, that's no, powerful. So it's a huge, but see, this is so counterintuitive to the feminist culture or the, what we call the culture of pink, the culture of romance. It's so counterintuitive and countercultural that that almost seems like it's heretical to say that. But Paul and Peter both command a wife to put on respect and never command uh, agape love. So what's that say? Does that say that this is an antiquated worldview and that somehow they were feeding patriarchy? Or was this a statement by Abba Father to us that a man has a need, that he has a need that only she can meet? And it's not a matter of feeding ego. It's that he's hardwired to respond to the feeling you respect him for who he is as a human being created in the image of God apart from his performance that you don't have contempt for who I am. Even though I failed you, you still believe in me. You still believe in the view that Jesus Christ has in me. As Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. When they fell asleep, mm -hmm. it hit the nadir of his experience. He needed them more than ever, and they were sleeping on him. But he didn't show contempt toward their spirit. He actually honored their spirit. It's what we call unconditional respect. Psychologists call call it unconditional positive regard that you huh. show toward the spirit of the person. You don't show contempt toward that inner man. And this is a need and it's unconditional just as a woman is energized when a man loves her no matter what. And every woman gets that, but we've been espousing that for the last four decades. And so everybody knows that love ought to be unconditional. You love the person in spite of. But if you say you respect the man in spite of, <laughs> that can sometimes trigger World War III. So what we have to do is help people understand what we're saying and what we're not saying. But I think, again, the idea that you're saying, hey, I would rather live with someone who respects me than loves me, that seems so odd unless we then say, you know what, there's a need here. Mm -hmm. This is about a need. And he's not wrong for feeling that way. He's just different. And many men would voice what you're saying, but fear uh, the reaction. So kind of go along with it. And usually the person who says it's all about a man needing love is usually coming out of the professional psychological industry. And uh, that's, you know, he's he's 80 percent of his clients are, are women and he's making his money, um, you know, through that. He's not ill willed. Yeah. But I have challenged the industry to be very cautious. I say, if you want men to line up outside your door, that's not the message that you need to be communicating. Yeah, and I really appreciate it. As I was reading your book, I thought, oh, man, this guy took some hits. <laughs> I, I mean, you had to have taken hits from women, especially saying, because I think as men, we know that we need to love our wives unconditionally. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. But the concept, uh, the word that you've attached that was unique was you've attached the word unconditional mm -hmm. on respect. And I bet mm -hmm. you've had some rocks thrown at you, my friend. Well, what's interesting is I recognize that women are not mean-spirited when it comes to the marital relationship. Instead, they, they fear. Yeah. Women are feared, fearful. And so if you can then ease their hearts, I'm not here to try to subject you to abuse or to uh, have you feed your husband's ego. There are narcissistic men. But what if what if what I'm saying really would empower you? What if What if the connectivity, the sense of, connection, heart-to-heart -heart connection, good talks, face-to-face. -face. Uh, what if I could say to you that if you use a few vocabulary words, that your husband will actually move towards you, soften in his spirit, and connect with you, and want to serve you, use both of you reference. If, you're, if your wife meets that need, you, you're there to die for her, serve, do yes. whatever. 
And so women are very intrigued by this. So what, what I have not had a whole lot of objection. It's what, what has amazed me is that we've not had a lot of people come at me. The, the initial reaction, if they see the subtitle, well, we women need respect, you know, uh, the, the, the love that she desperately needs, the respect that he, you know, he needs as well. Well, we women need respect. So I say, yeah, we all need love and respect equally. Mm-hmm. And I, I put in that disarming statement, we do, we all need it equally. But during conflict, the felt need is different. Generally speaking, women filter it through the love grid, the love glasses, love lenses, and men filter conflict through the respect lens. Not the least of reasons is that he's assured of her love. One of the reasons, again, that you said what you said is it's not that men don't need love, but women love to love. That's why God does not command them to agape love. It's within their nature to nurture. Yes. So almost every husband you say, does your wife love you? Oh, yeah. Hey, does she like you? <laughs> no, no, not today. <laughs> so true. That's so true. So, well, speaking of that, so uh, this is, uh, I'm going to put, say this is one word. I'm going to put the second word in parentheses to make Dale happy. So the, the word, uh, words is cra- uh, crazy cycle. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say about that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the uh, result of my meditation on Ephesians 5.33, which is the summary statement in the New Testament. It would be considered, Ephesians 5 is considered the greatest treatise on marriage in the New Testament. And Verse 33 is the summary where a husband is commanded to love Mm -hmm. and the wife is commanded to respect. And again, uh, I've had countless women say, I've read that verse, I don't know how many times, never saw the respect side. That's where they're at. But when I then meditated, I thought, well, what, what happens when a wife feels unloved? When I fail to love Sarah in the way that she needs to be loved, what tends to happen? Well, she tends to negatively react in, in, in a way that feels disrespectful to me. And what happens when I feel disrespected? I have a tendency to negatively react in a, in, in very naturally in a way that's unloving. Mm-hmm. And that puts us on what we call the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts. And this baby starts to spin, and thus the crazy cycle. And we keep getting on it. It's like we, you know, the definition of insanity that we all know is you keep doing the same thing over and over again with the same ill effect. And couples who have goodwill are confused because they keep getting on the crazy cycle and it keeps spinning and they don't know how to get off of it. And they're not really sure why they're on it. And some can't put a voice and vocabulary to the dynamic until they hear me say it. And then it's like the light bulbs go off. But the crazy cycle without love, she reacts without respect, without respect, he reacts without love. And uh, you can tell you're on it when you see the spirit of your spouse usually deflate or get provoked. And you sense the issue that we're talking about is no longer the issue. Mm. Well, you, in your book, numerous times, you use the word good-willed. And Mm. so you're writing a Christian book to a Christian audience, and so your assumption there, which is a right assumption, is that these people basically want to do the right thing. And so so my question is, when, when you meet with couples or work with couples or talk to couples after your conferences, do you find that most couples are generally good-willed and healthy, they just have been caught in the crazy cycle, or are you seeing something different? No, I would agree with that. I mean, if you're uh, committing adultery, you know, and you're unfaithful and there's betrayal, there are Judases out there. But one of the points that I make is that 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 33 and 34 says, the husband is concerned about how to please his wife, and the wife is concerned about how to please her husband. Now, Paul, who wrote that, wrote Romans the great treatise on the total depravity of the human heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul understood that we have a sin problem. He understood that we're selfish, 
but he didn't assert that in the sense that, hey, every one of you get married, you're married to an egotistical, narcissistic, prima donna, selfish, sinful, rotten, no good person. And when you have a conflict, it's just because you're married to a creep. No, I mean, no, the whole uh, assertion is you, you got to give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. And in the case of the crazy cycle, I don't believe Sarah ever intends consciously, willfully. She definitely doesn't get up early in the morning to storyboard ways <laughs> of dissing me throughout the day. That's never her intent. Yeah. And I don't get up even earlier to storyboard in the other room how I can be unloving throughout the day to her. And yet at the end of the day, I can feel disrespected. She can feel unloved. So what gives? It's because neither intend to react in that unloving or disrespectful way. It's a defensive reaction because we feel offended. We feel like they've stepped on our air hose and we're pushing them off arrows. We need love like we need air to breathe. We need respect like we need air to breathe. We have a love and respect tank connected by an air hose. So when our spouse steps on it, we're choking. We're not, so we push them off. But what we don't realize is we end up standing on their air hose and we go back and forth. And uh, we think the other should decode, hey, you started this. I'm just defensively reacting. I don't have ill will, and we don't. But when the other person is offended, and especially over a period of time where they continue to appeal to us to stop reacting that way, and we don't, then they begin to feel that we don't have goodwill. And one of the points I make is we've still got to place our confidence if there is no fact that your spouse is committing adultery or is, you know, I mean, if there's no, it's just that you're on the crazy cycle, then you have to then suspend your own feelings here and trust their deeper heart. And so when Sarah and I spin on the crazy cycle, I have to say to myself, she's not intending to be disrespectful. And I probably did or said something earlier that felt unloving to her. And so too, she needs to say, Emerson's not trying to be unloving. He would die for me if I don't kill him first. Right. <laughs> so, but did I say or do something that felt disrespectful to him? You know, it's amazing how quickly uh, resolution and reconciliation can occur if we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt and trust the other person's goodwill, that their spirit's willing, but their flesh may be weak. And that's really powerful. So you've mentioned over and over again your discovery in Ephesians chapter 5, and it really prompted the book. So will you share, will you walk us through what happened when you saw this passage in a new light? And, and the other question I struggle with is, I don't struggle with, I'm just curious, why after 2,000 years did it take some take someone so long that someone is you? Why did some to take, take us so long until somebody like you stepped up and discovered this concept of unconditional respect? I just, it's uncanny to me that it'd be sitting right there in the Bible and you're the first guy that I've ever seen or heard who addressed this concept of unconditional respect. Walk us through that. Well, no, those are good questions. It was 1998, 1999 when I had the illumination. I had the privilege of studying the Bible 30 hours a week for nearly 20 years as the senior pastor of Trinity Church. So um, that gave me a lot of time. And I often say to people, don't be too impressed by that. They just knew I was slow and I needed more time. But um, <laughs> the uh, uh, meditation on that you can see when I was looking at Ephesians 5.33, well, if I'm commanded to love and, com and Sarah's commanded to respect, is there a correlation here? Yeah. You know, and that's when I began to think, hmm, well, yeah, you know, I, I know that when she feels unloved, she reacts to me in a way that's disrespectful. So that may be why the Lord commands her to counter her proclivity to be disrespectful 
when it really isn't her deepest intent on the heels of feeling unloved? And would I actually become more loving if she reacted in a way, I'm not trying to dish you right now. I'm not trying to dishonor you, but what you did just felt unloving, hurt me. Would, would that work better with me? And so too, hey, you know, I, I'm not trying to be unloving. You know, my old man and his issues and how I react and I'm not trying to be unloving. I, I, you know, I, I, I help me say the loving thing here because this is the third time you backed into the garage and you're costing me money, you know? <laughs> and so there is this uh, correlation that I saw. And then I thought, well, that's the negative correlation. What is there a positive one? Oh yeah. Well, if I'm loving, it'll probably motivate Sarah to be respectful. And if she's respectful in a proactive sense, it'll probably motivate me to be loving. That's the energizing cycle. His love motivates her respect. Her respect motivates his love. And of course, it raised the question, what does love look like? What does respect look like? And I went through the Old and New Testament, looked at every passage that pertains to marriage that applies to the Christ follower. Now, isn't that a novel idea? Yeah. Instead of, and I have my PhD in family studies, you know, I'm educated beyond my intelligence, okay? <laughs> All right. So, but I've got all this graduate work and, but we have a tendency to take our systems and then go to the Bible to find passages to make what I'm saying kosher. And I made a decision that I'm not going to do that here. I'm going to start with the text dealing with marriage. You know, the, the faith has been once for all delivered, Paul said, and we're not to exceed what is written, Paul said. And so uh, Paul himself preached this whole counsel of God in three years in Asia. From Genesis to Revelation, there's this body of content and there is this body of content in marriage. And so I then said, well, Lord, I believe the overarching theme probably is that a man ought to love his wife. But Peter says, live with her in an understanding way. You know, husbands don't be embittered, Colossians. So you could make the case that there's different ideas of love. So I arbitrarily said, let's just kind of put these passages under love. So the weakness of what I might be saying is, hey, Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. He doesn't say that's necessarily loving. But the truth is, it would be a loving thing to do. So I collapsed those passages under love. And I also collapsed uh, everything for a wife under respect. So, for instance, the controversial idea of submission and mutual submission. What in the world is that all about? Well, both Paul and Peter start their passages with wives submit to your husbands. And then they conclude and put on respect. And you would think that he would conclude it by saying submit again. And I make the point that the first and primary way that a wife submits to her husband is submitting to his need to feel respected for who he is during conflict. And mutual submission happens because he submits to your need to feel love for who you are during that conflict. Mutual submission is impossible when it comes to decision making. Here, honey, you take the $500, I'll submit to you. No, honey, you take the $500, I'll submit to you. That's impossible. It had nothing to do with decision making. It had everything to do with attitude and simultaneous attitudes. And that was one of the points I make that has really liberated a lot of women because it's proactive. Women say, if that's what submission is first and foremost, I can do that. You're submitting to your husband's need to feel respected for who he is when he doesn't deserve it behaviorally any more than you deserve to be loved for your misbehavior here, your PMS moment, pre-murder syndrome. <laughs> you know. But if he puts on love, you know, you know it's going to work. So uh, and the third was ultimately the rewarded cycle. What if your spouse isn't responding to you? Is there any merit in continuing to put on love and respect? Yes, because Paul makes the point that everything you do is going to be rewarded on this side of salvation. Salvation is free gift through Jesus Christ. We can't buy heaven. It's a gift. 
But once we have been forgiven, the Lord has an add-on. It's kind of like there's an, he's saying, add a boy, add a girl. I want to reward you. He says, when the son of man returns, he'll come with, with his reward with him. And he's going to reward the husband who puts on love toward a disrespectful woman. The incentive isn't because she deserves it. The incentive is because Jesus Christ is standing beyond the shoulder of your wife. And he's going to reward you for this. Everything counts. Everything matters. Nothing is wasted. So those were the three cycles, his love unto Jesus Christ, regardless of her respect, her respect unto Jesus Christ, regardless of his love. And I called Sarah into my study and I said, I just had this illumination. She was blown away by it and said the third cycle, the rewarded cycle, prevents anybody from having an excuse that everybody can do this. Yep, that's so true. So Emerson, as you talk about this uh, Ephesians 5, it really intrigues me. Because the way that Paul ordered the pairs in this Ephesians 5, we call them uh, household codes. You know, he ordered it in a real unique way that I thought would have rocked the men to the core, but it seems to rock our women to the core when they hear the word submission. But in that passage, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, but he puts them first in the ordering of the of the pairing. The men must have gone crazy there, because this is a patriarchal society where, where men had the authority to kill their kids legally if their kids were disobedient. And so here Paul is ordering the wives, he's putting their name in the order ahead of the husbands, wives first, then husbands, and that must have really rocked the church. And so I struggle sometimes with why pastors shrink back at this passage or why women rise up against this passage. And I think what you've done is you've really um, put the fire out in your message, and I really appreciate that. And you wrote on page 15 of your book, and I, I don't know if there's a question behind this. I just thought it was so powerful. It goes along with what we're saying. A husband is to obey the command to love, even if his wife does not obey this command to respect. And a wife is to obey the command to respect, even if the husband does not obey the command to love. I just think that is such a powerful statement. So what has to happen in my heart as a man, to love unconditionally when my wife has those moments of disrespect. Do you have mm-hmm. tools that you can give us? Well, yeah. I mean, though, uh, there's a number of thoughts on this, but I think this is why I don't think we have a crisis of marriage in the church. We have a crisis of faith. Yes, and yes. The question on the table is, do I really believe Abba's there and that he has spoken? I mean, in Ephesians 3, a couple chapters earlier, Paul said, that which has been hidden in ages past has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. I wasn't raised in the church, so I didn't have that church background. And so when I came to Christ later, I had to ask myself, is Jesus accurate when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Peter said, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Hmm. We have to ask ourselves, do we believe in a revelatory worldview? Uh, my discipline of family studies in 1900s they, the intellectuals said, we no longer believe in a revelatory worldview. It used to be the Judeo-Christian worldview that influenced the thinking. So we reject that. And so each of us has to come to a point where we make a decision. Is this God's command to me apart from my wife? Is Jesus Christ commanding me to be a loving person? This is not about her being lovable. This isn't even about her being respectful. This is about Christ's command. So I die and I stand before the Lord and the Lord says, Emerson, did you, did you love Sarah? Lord, you know that woman's family of origin get this lord there were 20 24 divorces out of 18 marriages how can you do the math on that one lord i mean that's you know five out of four people have a problem with fractions <laughs> I, I have no idea how that's even possible 
Emerson. Yes, sir. Was this my command to you? Yes, sir. Did you do this out of trust and obedience toward me? Did you do this out of love and reverence toward me? Sarah's irrelevant here, son. And that's the way it's going to go down. Now, do I really believe that? And if I do, then the incentive is an honorable man. The incentive isn't to feel love. The, the incentive isn't to become pink. The incentive isn't to become, you're never going to feel that, that we we'll perhaps mentioned. But I do feel issues of honor. And I do want to honor the Lord. And I do trust him. And I do want to hear from him well done. This becomes deeply motivating. Mm. And so I then envision Jesus Christ standing beyond the shoulder of my wife. And as one guy said, you know, he just says, give me your best woman. Get, hit me with your best, you know, because he's looking at Christ beyond. Yeah. And he said, you know, bring it on. And uh, I thought that was humorous, but I thought at the same time very profound. And I think the challenge for all of us men is really this. Do we have it in us to really trust Christ in this? And I will say it's not easy, obviously. And uh, so we're not talking easy street here. But we are appealing to not to be a loving man, per se. We're appealing to be that man of honor who wants to honor Christ and is excited about hearing from the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Well done. I was watching. And I will say that this is what he's watching. Ephesians, when you when you look at the epistles like Ephesians one through three is doctrine, four, five and six is application. Colossians one and two is doctrine. Three and four is application. Romans one through eight is doctrine. 9311 deals with Israel and the rest of the book is application. Mm -hmm. And Paul in particular will swing from doctrine to application in four or usually three areas, but you know, there's a fourth. A husband-wife relationship is first and foremost. Then father-son, father-child relationship, should say, and then a master-slave, and then sometimes you have authority-citizen. Peter mm -hmm. will hit that. So those are the four areas, and it raises that question why. That's where the Lord's watching. It has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with spiritual giftedness. If I'm gifted as a teacher— and I'm standing in front of a congregation. I say to people, what I do up here, no, God wired me. He gave me the Holy Spirit to do this. But he wants to see how I'm with Sarah when I'm absolutely wiped out. Yep. We come home and I'm irritated. That's where he's watching. And if I make it through there, that's where he's going to say to me, well done, good and servant. He's not going to say, well done for using your gift of teaching. I gave that to you. You should have just <laughs> given me credit for that one. But that raw obedience, putting on love towards Sarah, now that's a man's man. That's that as that's a huge statement, Emerson, and and I, I heard a, a local preacher or a preacher on the radio say, uh, Jesus' default setting was to love, but my default setting is to anger, or to frustration, or to impatience, and so, you know, I and I think a lot of times in our society, in the church in America, we are functional deists and atheists. We say we believe, yet are we sold out to the core? Am I willing to die for my wife in spite of her moments of disrespect? That's really, really powerful. So, I, so here, so, so. But I would take issue just a little bit with Jesus' default on love. I mean, how do you define love? He got angry. Oh yeah. He threw over tables. He also uh, was silent. He wouldn't talk to you. He 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 would go. So I mean, again, we sometimes have this gentle, sweet Jesus idea that is misleading. That somehow it's a soft male. And but again, I, the, I I see the broader point that we're making, and that is, uh, am I really doing the loving thing here, or am I just you know stomping with my fist, you know, and so and so forth? I get it, so I don't want to take. No, I agree. I had a I had a guy in our podcast who who said that Jesus never got angry, and I said, well, 
he ripped the temple a new one, and twice Mark records he was indignant. He was he was angry. So we need to. So and this is another issue that's for a different podcast. But this is not a soft Jesus we're talking about. This is a man's man. This is the ultimate man. This is the Alpha and Omega man. You know what I'm saying? So so here's another question I have from your book. So you took this love and respect component. And then you did something with the book that was really unique and beautiful at the same time. And man, I'll tell you what, I use this almost in daily conversation. I almost forgot you wrote the book because I use it so much. Till I read the book again, I went, oh, this is where I got this. You wove love and respect together with pink and blue. Mm-hmm. How did that how did that happen? What's the morphology of that? Well, that's interesting. I, you know, obviously uh, my mom, uh, uh, she, she had three businesses back in the 50s and she she would say to women uh who are clients who are pregnant uh think pink but blue will do (laughs) and i think that's when i first heard it and i didn't know if i had anything to do with her sentiment or not i think as a young boy i probably did she began to favor girls but uh this is a controversial metaphor because it there is this part of the culture that is very reactionary to stereotypic thinking if you've got young millennial guys out there they kind of get tight when you talk about pink and blue, because they've been conditioned through academia, that that's stereotypic thinking and you're pigeonholing women and so on and so forth. And yet you have the pink ribbons. You know, my wife had a double mastectomy. She's part of the cancer survivor thing. Oh, wow. Pink is beautiful there. Uh, you have still the, the millennials themselves are still doing the gender um, birth parties where they'll have the pink and blue balloons. So yep. pink and blue has always represented the male and female. There are pockets that are uh, certainly sensitive to that. But I take it even bigger than that. Jesus Christ calls a husband and wife together to do two things, reflect the image of God. You see in Genesis, husband and wife together reflect the image, character, the nature of God. And celibacy is a gift that's given that allows you to reflect the nature and image of God apart from marriage. But if you don't have that gift, then marriage is God's call in your life, and husband and wife together reflect his nature. Secondly, the the Christ-church relationship in Ephesians 5 is represented by the husband-wife relationship. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, I say God's not pink, God's not blue. When you put pink and blue together, you get purple, the color of royalty, the color of God. And I point out that neither one of us are wrong. We're just different. But God caused us to live together so that we could ultimately find that win-win purple solution. And once we get that, it's very beautiful. Plus, when we're having a disagreement, you know, we can say, here, put on my pink sunglasses. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Well, here, put on my blue hearing aids. You're not hearing what I'm I'm saying. And both say we're not wrong. We're just different. But there's this tendency when I know I'm right on, in a disagreement, then I conclude my spouse has to be wrong. No, your decision may be better. It just means that they are less better unless you're talking about an intrinsic evil. Mm-hmm. But most husband-wife relationships are clashing preferences. So neither are intrinsically wrong. It's just that one is less better. And once we then understand that, then the nature of the arguments will change. We're not going to be trying to invalidate them, put them down. It's not a win-lose. It's like God has put something in your heart. God's put something in my heart. Neither one of us are wrong. We're just different. And let's, neither one of us is less than the other. So when I use the pink and blue, it has really been revolutionary. It's one of those themes that has you know people comment on constantly that that's been introduced into their marital vocabulary and it has brought tremendous healing because it allows for that mutual understanding and giving the other the benefit of the doubt and actually valuing that difference rather than seeing it as competitive or as somehow 
dismissive of me as a person. And that's good. I was I was laughing when you said uh, pink and blue is purple, which is royalty. And I I laughed inside and I thought, well, it's also the color of a bruise. And when I don't listen to her pink, I get beat up figuratively. <laughs> yes, you're black and blue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, there's uh, you can carry it in any number of ways. Yours is weird. Mine's profound. <laughs> I'll, I'll, just I'll, I'll, kidding. I, I just receive kidding. I receive that. Yeah, I receive that. I receive it. Hey, so uh, so I, I I like to hunt, and I listen. I have a company called Primos, and they're they're uh, they make uh, hunting calls, and their their uh, tagline is "Speak the language." Uh, but <laughs> but in, in your book, though, you say decipher the code. Yes. So can you help us, guys? Can you help some more? We have our 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 audiences. Guys from a you know mainly twenty five to forty five, they're living in the stress bubble. They're trying, working really hard. They're raising a family, community oriented, loving their wife. And I, I, there are guys out there right now that are going, okay, help me understand pink. What would you say to guys who want to learn how to decipher their wife's uh, their wife's pink uh, lenses, megaphone ear earpieces? How how would you help these guys out? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll illustrate that. And before I illustrate it, though, it's very, very important. Here's a, here's the honor code. A guy who's listening may be having light bulbs going off, like for the first time he's got. I mean, there are guys that are actually weep, realizing that it's okay for them to be a male. The yes. way they feel is normal because they're they've got good hearts. I call them sometimes these gentle giants. I have them in our conferences where they'll start bawling because I'll say, "There's nothing wrong with you." The way you feel. I, guys say to me, I don't have these feelings. I said, there's nothing wrong with that. Are you an honorable man? Do the honorable thing. Love her. Do the loving thing. You don't have to feel sentimentality. I mean, the research points men are not sentimental as much as women are. Look at the card industry. They know that. But somehow yes. guys feel that they're not responding like a woman. There's something inherently wrong. And so right now, some guys are experiencing a healing. Like, whoa. And they haven't heard this. And it's like it, it, they, they have just walked into something that they'll never be the same. But it's very, and then they'll co they'll go home and they'll make this innocent but very stupid blunder. Hey, woman, what? I just learned why I'm so unloving. Why? Because you're so disrespectful, woman. And, and he, I like the can, southern accent. Well, you know, you got. I don't know what caused me to do that, but nonetheless, um, you know, it it is it, it is important that you not do that. Yes. Because she's not going to hear you on that, even though that can be a very tender comment you don't want to start with that because she's just not going to hear you on that any more than if the respect message was all we ever heard and a woman came home one day and said i now realize why i'm reacting so disrespectfully to you why because you've been so unloving you're a you're a freak of nature you know you're not going to receive enter it. the crazy cycle <laughs> that's right but now to your question um the university of washington studied 2,000 couples for 20 years and they said we now know the two key ingredients for successful marriage Love and respect, love and respect. And they became gender specific in that. And uh, that, in other words, men lean on the respect side, women on the, on the love side, which is fascinating. Although there's always crossover. Yes. There are times we need love and on. And women, Sarah, many times say, you're not respecting me right now. Why? Because I'm dismissing her opinion. You know, so this is not an absolute, but th there is so much truth of this that we have to understand it. We've asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse, uh, do you feel unloved at that moment or disrespected? 83%, Jim, of the men said they feel disrespected. 72% of the women say they feel unloved. Whoa. This is huge. 
from a statistically significant standpoint, it's just off the charts. And the reliability and predictability of that question has been tested numerous times. So we're talking about a felt need. But the University of Washington said, in a conflict, 85% of those who at a certain point in marital conflict stonewall and shut down is the male, 85%. 85%. That is statistically significant. But they also were monitoring the heartbeats of the men and women. And at that point in time, his heartbeats are 99 beats per minute. Oh, wow. He's in, he's in warrior mode. Yep. So what does a man do when he doesn't want to fight? He has to separate. He has to exit. He has to withdraw. He has to stonewall. He has to calm down. So I also think she's picking a fight. She's not trying to pick a fight. But if anybody in his world talked to him the way that she's talking to him, they're picking a fight. Go time. So it's very difficult for him not to think that she's not picking a fight. But the women were asked, when, you, when he stonewalls that way, what do you feel? She said, it feels like an act of hostility. And you and I both know that he's doing it because he's honorable. He's trying to prevent the thing from escalating because he knows he's getting out of control, right? Mm -hmm. So it raises this question. Is it an act of hostility when he shuts down and withdraws or is it an act of honor? It just depends on whether you videotape in pink or blue. Yes. Not wrong, just different. She's not wrong for feeling that it feels hostile because in her world, you don't do that. You move toward the person and you vent. You just you let it all out until one says, well, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. Well, I'm sorry, too. I shouldn't have said it. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Well, I forgive you, too. And then they hug and then one's humorous and they say something silly and they, they wipe away the tears and they move on. It's called they feel very comfortable in the ocean of emotion. And that's the way they resolve issues. They bring it full circle. But halfway through, you and I say, drop it. Forget it. I don't want to keep talking about this. OK, but we're trying to do the honorable thing. She's trying to do uh, we're, we're trying to do the honorable thing. She feels it's hostile. Flip side. The majority of women criticize and complain, criticize, complain, criticize and complain to those 2000 couples for 20 years. The men were asked, what do you feel? Well, it just feels like she's using this topic as an opportunity to send me a message that she has contempt for who I am as a human being. But we know that women are nurturers, off the chart caregivers. Yes. Every man listening, his, if he had a stroke today, his wife is going to spend the next 30 years taking care of it. That's just, I mean, it's like 95%. It's just, just mind boggling. So women do what they do because they care. They, they care. They, they confront. They criticize. They, from their inner heart, they care. So it raises the question, when she criticizes and complains, is it an act of contempt or is it an act of care? Again, it depends on whether it's pink or blue. So to your point, what do we say to men? We have to begin to decode. Yes. We have to decipher that the language that your wife is trying to send to you is that she's caring and she's not she's not uh, picking up on the fact that you're doing what you're doing out of honor but that feels unloving to her so she's trying to do the loving thing and you feel she's doing the disrespectful thing and and you're trying to do the respectful thing and she feels you're doing the unloving thing and that has to be decoded if you don't decode that you're going to continue to spin on the crazy cycle so one of the things that you can do as a man who's listening, you get into this conflict where you shut down to say, I'm shutting down right now because I need to calm down. I need 15 minutes to calm down. Then let's get back together and talk about it for 15 minutes, not 15 hours. I want to just wrap up that point, but I need to calm right down because this is the honorable thing for me to do right now. And I know you feel unloved, but give me the grace right now. Give me 15 minutes. And I, and I, I promise I'm going to come back and, and talk for 15 more minutes about this. But right now I got to calm down and pull my head together on this. Okay. Now, that would be one approach that he could use to help her understand that. The flip side, when she's coming at him, what he thinks is another, you know, talk to criticize. She's just using this topic as an opportunity. He has to ask himself, 
what's her motive here? Hmm. Is it to diss you? Is it to emasculate you? Is it to get you to sing high pitched tenor in the boys choir next week? <laughs> you know, yeah. is, is that really her motive here? Or is she, at the core of her being, is she threatened? Does she feel like I have a need that only you can meet? I need reassurance that you love me and I'm panicking a little bit. And that's why I'm reacting this way. Is she really reacting this way because she sees this as a moment to really diss you? Or is it her way of trying to say, reassure me that you love me? And uh, this becomes uh, an art. Uh, we know the science, but it, it takes practice. I never am going to do it. Sarah chased me around the house with my book one time saying, what would you say to a husband treating his wife the way you're treating me right now? I read and, that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> none of us are going to do this perfectly. I mean, Sarah was wrong again. <laughs> yeah. Or I like what you say in your book. She was right wrongly. She was right yeah, well, she doing was the wrong right thing. The, but she was wrong at the top of her voice. Yes, exactly. That's right. I love that. That's really good. So yeah, I was thinking about you. Well, I know for in my personal relationship, so I will shut down, but what I do is I'll put her, it's a horse training term, on the snubbing post. Like I'll tie her up to the post and I'll just walk away and leave her there alone without getting the love and the, what she desires. So the thing she wants from me, I don't give that to her because I've withdrawn Instead of staying in this crazy cycle, I've created my own cycle where I've just put her over here and said, I'm just not going to love you right now until you get your act well, together. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, there can be a conscious, willful decision not to be loving, but my prediction would be you're doing what, we, if you and I were best of buddies and we get into a heated moment, at a certain point, we stop talking. We're going to use our fists, yeah. right? So because we're honorable men and because the friendship and relationship far exceeds the topic at hand, then we will shut down and distance ourselves to protect this whole thing. It's not like a yes. guy's thinking, I'm going to do this just to be unloving. Now, it, yes. you can. I mean, Good. a guy can can just sit there and ignore her just because he knows it drives her nuts. That's <laughs> that's taunting. But yes. some men are not in that camp. They're just confused. And this, I think, can clarify for them. And you can then reassure her, I need 15 minutes to calm down right now. But once you're calm, there's a tendency to say, hey, I'm good to go. We don't need to talk about it. No, she still needs to talk about yes. it. Chemically, they've discovered that you and I, after a heated moment like that, that chemical in us leaves us in 60 minutes. That's why we don't. We leave in the morning and we come home at night and she's she immediately is still stewing about what happened at breakfast and we can't even remember that, right? We're like, want to have sex? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it stays within a woman for about 12 hours. Wow. And so you have to understand that one hour versus the 12 hours. That's why she keeps getting, it was one guy says, my wife keeps getting historical. You said, you mean hysterical? No, historical. <laughs> she keeps dredging everything up from the past. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Well, so, uh, yeah, I love that part in your book. So here's a question. We are running real short on time here, and I'm just, I could probably go for two more hours. When we're, when we're deciphering her pink words to us, can you give us some advice on how do we get to the real issue? What is her real issue when she's speaking in pink to us? How do we know what that? How can how can we dig into that and mine out the real issue there? Can you just ask well, what's the real issue? Could you probably shouldn't just ask it. What are you really saying here, honey? <laughs> well, no, I mean I think again there there's one thing that I did early on is when Sarah was coming to me. I used to say, am I in trouble or is this not about me? <laughs> you know, so, you know, I joke with that. She's no, it's not about you. And I'd relax, you know, so whew, good. But the, another thing, when she would be coming at me, I said, honey, do you need a solution or just a listening ear? Oh, that's good. Say that again, please. Honey, do you need a solution or a listening ear? That's and good. in 90, 95% of the cases, the solution is the listening ear. 
as a man, we communicate for the purpose of exchanging information. And the guys, well, yeah, why else would you talk? Well, <laughs> women talk not only to exchange information, but to release their emotions, to realize their emotions, and also to give the report to build rapport. So they have a set of levels of why they're coming at us. And it isn't always just because they have a problem that they need a solution to. That's how you and I help one another. If I come to you with a problem, you're going to kick into solution mode. That's who we are as men. We'll say, thank you. High five it, man. I should have come to you two weeks ago. So we think when she comes to us with a problem, she wants a solution. She has a different reason she's coming. She, we are the Christ figure. She is the church figure. She's casting her burden onto us and just having us hear her heart knowing that this is something she's going through, and we just listen and even say, hey, let's just have a quiet prayer here at the end of this. She's good to go. A lot of us are working way too hard at this. Yes, yes. You see what I mean? Oh, we're I do. We're trying to solve it. We're good-hearted men, honorable men, trying to solve it, and it blows up in our face, and we're thinking, man, we are so confused, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and understandably so. So ask the question, do, do you need a solution here listening near? I, I want to serve you well. Well, and on page 108, you wrote this. I thought this was powerful. When a wife comes at him with disrespect, flashing in her eyes and venom, sh flashing from her eyes and venom shooting from her tongue, every husband has two choices. Number one, defend his pride by firing back venom of his own or stonewalling. Or two, try to hear his wife's cry and respond with unconditional love. You teach me. So this, I, I love that phrase because instead of me trying to lash out or defend while she's coming at me with the venom or the flashing eyes and the peals of thunder, you know, uh, I am, I am trying to, instead of defend myself, interpret what does she need from me right now? Is that what you're saying? Well, definitely. If, if the reason that she's coming at us is because something has happened and felt very unloving to her. And, and she's been trying to get the message through. And also there is a cyclical thing. There is the, you know, there are a lot of things that go on here that make, you know, like we're wonderful for three and a half weeks out of the month and then whammo. And then after that, we're again, we're, it, it, we're like on a yo-yo. Guys don't know. They're confused and they think she's confused. But if a man is willing to say, you know what, hey, I, I want to understand what's going on here. Help me understand. Help me to do the loving thing. Where do I need to say I'm sorry? I, I can see where I reacted there. Please. She will melt. Yes. I tell men there is so much power. And I tell some guys, try this out. Even, even if you don't believe me, see if you're man enough. I say to guys, you don't have it. I had one guy who was a street fire. He was arrested and he had 60 violations one night. He, you know, he just, if you were in a bar with him, he, he'd kick you right between the legs before you even could look at him twice. You know, and he just was a fighter. His wife was yapping at him all the time. And I said, well, the next time she comes at you, just say, you know, let's just go over there on the couch and pray about oh, this. Yeah, I remember the story. You know, and he said, she won't respond when she comes at me. She's up and she's, you know, I said, oh, you don't have enough guts to do it. You're a chicken. <laughs> you're a you chicken. big wuss. You're, 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 trying, you're coming up with an excuse. You're a chicken. You can't. I said, I can do it. I said, yeah, you're no street fighter. All that's false myth. You're just <laughs> urban legend. And he said, no, I'll do it. I said, OK, you do it. And when you do it, you call me uh, about four or five days later. He calls me and says, this is unbelievable. I said, what happened? <laughs> She was coming at me. She and I said, and I was just going to do what I normally do—just walk on her. And I just calmed down. I said, "Okay, we can either continue to get into this, or we can go over there and on the couch and just pray about it." He said. Her shoulders drooped. She turned on her heels, walked <laughs> gently over to the couch, sat down, shut her eyes, put her hand out on the couch so that he would come yeah. over and put his hand on her hand. And and he said, "I almost wet my pants." <laughs> I like this story better than the one you told in the book. <laughs> 
Well, I don't know how I. You left the wet. You left the wet my pants part out in the book. Oh yeah. Well, I joke with him because he's getting older, and that's going to happen anyway because he's wearing the pins. (laughs) Oh man. Well, so you were heading somewhere I thought you were going to go to, and you didn't quite get there. So I'm going to throw this out. You you gave men a tool in your book I thought was outstanding. A, a, A phrase that men can say to just disarm their wife. And to begin to get out of the crazy cycle, and and I'll let you put this in your own words, but the way I interpret it was: here are the words: "I'm sorry if I've done something unloving." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you know, or it, it, the if is a little bit. We we need to be a little bit more because she might just say if she's really you don't know what it is. What oh. do you mean if? Oh, you know? that's so, true. You know, it, we need to be very concrete. You know, or you know, it's or if you say I'm I'm being honest right now. I'm shutting down, but it's unfair to you. It'd be unloving. I know I've done something unloving. I'm honestly saying I'm not quite sure what it is, but help me better understand. I really want to be teachable here. I mean, some guys are so fearful that she's going to pull out both guns and even unload or, you know, there's so much fear on this. So what you have to do is trust me here. Don't be afraid of doing this and and test it out and see the power, the power of this. When your spirit is gentle like that, watch what happens in her. My prediction is she'll say, "Well, I shouldn't have said it the way I said it. I'm sorry too. Will you forgive me?" Gosh, that that's such a that is such a powerful tool, Emerson. Uh, to tool Emerson to end on. There's so much more I'd want to ask you about. You you give guys a couple acrostic that is basically it spells the word couple. Uh, you know, closeness. She needs your closeness. She needs your openness. She needs your understanding. She needs your peacemaking, loyalty, and esteem. There's just so much in the book. I just really want our guys to go pick it up. Uh, maybe start a love and respect class at their churches. This is just a, a marriage saving, uh, uh, you called it an illumination. So thank you for that. We have one last question, and I'll let you go. But our men in the arena here, we define manhood as five things. Protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. In your life, what resonates of those five? Well, I think the older I get, finishing strong certainly you know, uh, struck me emotionally as you were saying that that's the desire to finish strong at this point, 67. I feel like I've got another 30 good years in me, but, uh, you know, that may not be at all realistic. So, but you know, finish strong. And, uh, I would say those who want more information, loveandrespect.com all spelled out L O V E A N D R E S P E C T.com. And we have a 15 day plan there. That's free. I wrote oh. it uh, several months ago, and we've got about 30,000 people that signed up for it, maybe more now. now. And uh, uh, so that's free. That would give them a little bit more of a taste, the 15-day plan. It'll pop up on their screen if they go to the website, loveandrespect.com. Well, hey, man, you just answered my last question, and I sure appreciate it. That was the fastest hour in the history of the world, I think. It flew by. <laughs> Emerson, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom, experience, and your illumination with our men in the arena and for being a man in the arena yourself. So thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. Men, you've been listening to this episode of the Man Card Podcast. Changing your world is the toughest thing you'll ever do, but we want to help you along your journey. So make sure you head on over there, guys, to meninarena.org and grab your free copy of Man Laws. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. 
What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.